Father, it is a incredible privilege as a saint to sing out how deep indeed is the Father's love for us, that it is completely and totally beyond measure. We see that love clearly displayed at the cross of Christ. Lord, we see it displayed in His death. We see it displayed in Him absorbing the wrath of God in our stead. So Lord, as we come to the Scriptures this morning, may it be that we make much of Jesus, that we make much of the Scriptures, and that above all, we leave this place celebrating the finished work of Christ. And Lord, that we in our hearts long to know and to cherish Him more and long to see others know Him and make Him known amongst the nations. It is in the name of Christ and through His precious blood we pray. Amen. May be seated. So we find ourselves on the third, on our second value. The past couple weeks, we're continuing our journey through the core values of Mercy Hill Church. We talked briefly about our mission statement. Our mission statement is simple. Uh, Follow Jesus, make disciples. Um, We have a simple mission statement because I'm convinced the message of Christianity is rather simple. Follow Jesus, aim to seek and seek to follow him in everything that you do, long to be obedient to him. And then secondly, in obedience to him, make disciples in the nations. That means right here and now within our own families, within to our neighbors, but also expanding across the globe into the nations. And so we have a very simple mission statement for those reasons. And we looked last week at biblical faithfulness, that we long to to cling closely to the scriptures. We long to see uh, the the word of God proclaimed and preached from this pulpit. But we also long to see that gospel proclaimed and preached to the nations. And that means that we have people that are actively taking the good news of the cross and taking it to the nations. That means that by God's grace, perhaps, that he would call some here this morning even to go to the nations, even to reach out into a lost and dying world, whether that be be your next door neighbor, or uh, maybe the Lord would call you to, to Africa or India or Asia because you have a heart to see lost people come to faith in Christ. And so um, we long for biblical faithfulness. And then we come this morning to the term gospel centrality. Now, let me be the first to tell you, it should be a redundancy that I have to preach a sermon on gospel centrality in a local church. Um, however, we don't live there. Um, the fact that I've got to come and, and, and walk through a passage of Scripture to, to say it's important that this is everything that we do, everything that we do, how we live, how we act, the way our marriages look, the way we act in our workplaces ultimately reflects on the gospel, and the gospel should impede every, it should reach into every single area of your life. There is no exception to it. Now, it, it seems redundant because the gospel is the start of the church. I mean, really, apart from people coming to faith in Jesus, now this goes all the way back into the Old Testament even, people were saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament, looking forward to the resurrected Christ, the one that would come and rescue them from their sin. And so the church has always been founded on this idea of by grace through faith in Christ alone are people saved. And so when we talk about gospel centrality, it's foolish for us to assume that because we've started there that we should quickly depart from it. On the contrary, if it is our starting place, then we should cling very closely to it. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background context for this because what we have is Paul writing to a church in Corinth. Uh, This particular church was known for having all types of issues. I mean, you look throughout and Paul's addressing disorder in worship. Paul's addressing sexual morality. Paul's addressing uh, the way um, there's food sacrificed to idols and how we we should act in that context. But ultimately, what you find is a little bit of a reversal in the way that Paul writes. In almost all of Paul's letters, you see him start with theology. Here's how you should think. 
And then he begins to break down how that interacts with your daily life. And so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, you see the gospel being very clearly displayed. And then in chapter 4, you see Paul write, um, you should walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so the way Paul writes is he says, I'm going to give you exactly what you need to know, how you should think, what your theology should be, and that will make clear how you should live your life, what we call doxology. But what we find in 1 Corinthians is something a bit different. Instead of writing about the theology first, he, he goes in and he combats things that are very, very prevalent in the church at Corinth. And then he begins this in, verse, in chapter 15. He begins to point them to the resurrection of Christ. Almost like as he's written about everything that they need to do, how they should act, how they should live in their context, he begins to point them back to the central truth of the gospel that if they would believe this, then ultimately they would find themselves having great ease in fulfilling the commands that God has given them. And so let's look and consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. If you would, um, in the honor of the reading of God's word, please stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, we ask you to bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Lord, we, we, we believe and we know that your word will never fail to accomplish the purpose that you've set out for it. It will never return void. And so, Father, I pray over this service, Lord, as we approach the Holy Scriptures. God, that you would allow it to speak truth into our life, that you would give life to dead men, and Lord, that you would bring greater life to those who have been redeemed. So, Father, we love you. We ask you to do a great work in our hearts this morning. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. The first thing that we want to do this morning is we're going to kind of take this a little bit out of order. So instead of starting in verse 1, we're going to start in verse 3. So the way that we're going to approach the scriptures this morning is we're going to look ultimately at what the gospel Paul preached was. This is very, very important because in our current day, there are thousands of different gospels that find themselves running around the church. The issue is there's only one. And Paul even addresses this in the book of Galatians and says, if anyone is to preach a gospel contrary to the one I preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, I want you to hear the language here because he's not being gentle. Let him be accursed. He even recites it again just to make sure that he's added a sufficient amount of emphasis to it that if anyone comes to preach a different gospel than the one that Paul has preached, the one that God has given to Paul, the gospel that we all, if we are in Christ, have received and cherish and love, that if anyone is to come in and preach a different gospel, then they are to be accursed. Now, it's harsh language because it's a harsh crime. This is not a gentle thing that Paul is bringing. He is bringing a great charge against those who come in. He says, even if an angel of light, by the way, the birth of the Mormon church came from one who came as an angel of the light. Just a fun fact. Um, And so you find these things happening still in our day. And the issue is not the grand subtleties that we find, or the, the grand deviations from the gospel that we find. Instead, it's the most minor ones. It's the ones that come in and say, I ultimately rescued myself. It is robbing the glory from God. One of the great truths of the Reformation that came out about 500 years ago, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks, is the term soli deo gloria. 
to the glory of God alone. That means that the way God works in salvation is ultimately to rescue lost sinners for his glory and his fame among the nations. That he rescues each and every one of us with the intent of bringing himself glory through our lives. Now, if you ask me, that is a grand blessing from God, that my life feeble and frail as it is, has a great intention of bringing renown, fame, and glory and fame to Christ. I'm so thankful for that because I've got an average of about 77 years here on the earth that he has rescued and redeemed me to a task that has no expiration date, that, that by the ministry that God allows me to do here to bring him fame and glory here on the earth, that I may be dead thousands of years and still ripples will be, will be sent out throughout eternity because we share the gospel with people, see whole families come to faith in Jesus. And so the beauty of the gospel is, is it is primarily about bringing fame and glory to Christ. And if we come in and assault that gospel, ultimately what we are doing is walking into the throne room of grace and saying, it's my glory. If we did this in a current culture, a king or a president would put you to death. It's called treason. And so what we find here is this gospel that Paul was preaching, it's crucial that we understand it the way that Paul understood it, the way that we find it in the scriptures. And so um, what you'll find in verse three is, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, notice the language here, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this is incredible because that means that this gospel has already been proclaimed in the past. And that's really important for us to understand because for some reason, we think we come to the New Testament and all of a sudden the gospel presents itself. And although it does in full, there are very clear shadows and types of it throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. For instance, in Genesis chapter two, uh, in Genesis chapter three, forgive me, it says this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now minor, you may think that is. This is the very first slaughter of a creature. Adam and Eve have already attempted to clothe themselves with fig leaves. They've covered themselves and God ultimately looks at them and he tells them essentially, you are naked. It doesn't matter what you cover yourself with. You can cover yourself with the most beautiful fig leaves you can find. But apart from me covering you, you are still at guilt. You are still naked. And this is interesting too that you find this only after what we find earlier on in Genesis chapter 3 where God calls out to man and says, where are you? The whole initiation of this relationship after the fall is God beginning a good work in Adam and Eve and providing for them coverings. They see that there is something that is coming that needs to cover them, to cover them for their sin, for they are indeed naked. And if they are naked, they are exposed before the Lord. Their guilt, their shame is clearly seen. They themselves see it. And yet God comes in and clothes them and you even see a continued relationship between Adam and Eve and God ultimately because God had done a work to bridge the gap between God and man. Even in that, looking forward to one who would come that would clothe them with even greater righteousness. They would truly cover them in full. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 is a great example, but a better one is this, Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a story that we are all familiar with, I would assume. Abraham and Isaac this grand camping trip where they decide, hey, we're going to, um, the Lord calls Abraham to go and to sacrifice his son. I want you to hear the language here in Genesis chapter 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now we're going to come back to this in just a minute, but let's just consider what's about to take place. 
Abraham's going to take his son on which he, he walks him up the mountain. He's got the wood strapped to his back. He climbs up this mountain. God shows him exactly where he is to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac allows himself to be bound and he, placed, he allows himself to be placed on an altar. And what we find is this language that Abraham stood over Isaac and began to drop the dagger to slaughter his son. It says slaughter. Not a gentle term. It is, it is rough. It is, it, is, it is a slaying. It is bloodshed. But then we see this almost immediately. We see a ram caught in its horns by the thicket. I love this. What's a thicket? Thorns and thistles. What you see the ground cursed with in Genesis chapter 3. Thorns and thistles it will bear for you. It's also what you see laying on the head of Christ as he is crucified. That ram caught in its horn by the thickets is meant to foreshadow that one that would come that would bear our sin, that would ultimately allow the curse to be placed on him that we all might be free from it. But that is not the extent of the picture in Genesis chapter 22. If you look in verse 2 where it says, take your son, your only son Isaac. The Greek there, when it's translated to the Septuagint, is monogenes, only begotten. It's what you find in John chapter 3. Verse 16, a a verse that that truly, I mean, you can almost find yourself in any realm of the world. And John 3, 16 has somehow made its way there. The only begotten son. The better only begotten son. You see, Isaac here was just a foreshadowing, and he was not to be slain. Instead, what you see is all of the nations that would flow from Isaac. All of the ones who would be true sons of Abraham through faith that their substitute was the one who would come, the true and better monogenes, the one, the only begotten, the incomparable son, and that he would absorb the wrath of God, but, he, but, but the father would not stay his sword. Instead, you would see him execute the son at the cross, emptying his wrath. So Genesis chapter 22 is another very clear picture. We call them types. They make us see things in the Old Testament. We also see in passages like Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Not only do we understand from the Old Testament that the Messiah who's going to come is going to die in our stead, we also understand why he is going to die. Listen to the language here. He was pierced for our transgressions. Very clearly, an, an, an Israelite who understands what would happen on the Day of Atonement, they would understand this language, that there would be one who would die in our stead, that there would be one who would be slain so that we might be free from our sin and from our guilt. And so what you find here, in Isaiah 53, as the Israelites would hear it, they would think to themselves, clearly, clearly, this is a true God, true man who would come and dwell amongst us and allow himself to be pierced. Let me tell you how clear this text is about Christ. The Jews call it, the Orthodox Jews who have rejected Christ as their Messiah, call it the forbidden chapter. Don't read it. Why? Because it is such a clear picture. We can't find anything. I mean, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we see pictures, but Isaiah 53 is this grand painting of exactly who the Messiah will be. He will indeed be our suffering servant, servant who will absorb the wrath of God for us, but also will bring to glory many, many sons. And so when, we, when Paul writes, he died for us according to the scriptures, what he is saying is that throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, Jew and Gentile alike, the ones who had heard the message of the God of Israel, the ones who had even been brought into the camp of the Jews, would have understood that there was one who was coming that would actually absorb the wrath of God. They would no longer walk up on the Day of Atonement to Yom Kippur where they would see a lamb or something slaughtered in their place only to come back next year. Instead, there would be one who would actually finish the work. And let's look at Psalm 22, for instance, a beautiful, beautiful psalm. 
Listen, this, this is 500 years. Hear me. 500 years before the creation of crucifixion at all. It hadn't happened yet. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. It's pretty lengthy, but I'm just going to read you this one. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18 says this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Does this sound familiar? This is 500 years before the invention of crucifixion. It hasn't even come to pass yet. And what we have here is not only in the Psalm 22, and if you would like to read through that entire Psalm, you will see very clearly a step-by-step portrayal of what actually happened at the cross. But one of the most incredible things here is he narrows it down to such an extent that he's taking into account that there are men gambling for his clothes. And the gospel has been a benchmark. No, I would say that it is indeed the scarlet thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. It matters not where you find yourself. Genesis to Revelation, you will always find yourself, if you are faithful to the text, that's why when we say biblical faithfulness, it, it, it innately means gospel centrality. If we aim to be biblically faithful as as Paul charges Timothy, preach the word, then what you will find preached here, at least it should be day in and day out, is the gospel of Christ, for he has placed it central in the word. And so in Psalm 22, where he says, um, my hands are pierced, at the end of Psalm 22, we see this phrase, glorious phrase. By the way, Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends with, for he has done it. You almost have Christ use the language of Psalm 22 to put a bracket around it. Like everything that's about to take place, you can find this of old. And so in Psalm 22, we see very clearly a picture of the gospel. But then also let's understand what the New Testament teaches in regard to the death of our Lord. Because to be real honest, even though these paint clear pictures, without the illumination of the New Testament, we would not know it in full. Because what we find at the cross of Christ is something we call substitutionary atonement. But for us to understand it in full, we must understand who we are. This is why the gospel is offensive. Because it starts off with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every human soul. It matters not whether you were Jew or Gentile. It matters not if you were born Baptist or if you were born a pagan. God shows no partiality. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6 makes it abundantly clear the penalty for that. The wages of sin is death. And that's, that's how you make a friend, right? You walk up to them and you tell them the beginning of the gospel and people are thrilled with it. Yes, I want that. No. It is incredibly offensive, especially to the unregenerate heart who knows nothing else but that how good he actually is. We're convinced of how righteous we actually are and we are able-bodied people. We can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can defend ourselves against the omniscient God. Can you imagine the folly of standing in front of the God who knows our hearts, the deepest, most intimate thoughts that not even our spouses or our children or whoever is closest to you know, and you give a defense for your wickedness? He knows every single thought. Do you think that you're going to be acquitted off that? And the reason that many do think they'll be acquitted is because they have, a, they have an improper understanding of two things, God's holiness and your sinfulness. 
You see, when Paul is bringing to attention this particular verse, he is pointing out to them again the gospel, that you need to understand who you are apart from Christ. You are dead in your sin, and if you should stand before the holy God apart from the finished work of Jesus, he would say, away with you, I never knew you, to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, what does the scripture say? If we deserve death, how then can we be redeemed? And let's clarify the language of death real quickly. It is not our common understanding of death today. No. Death is not ceasing to be. That's honestly an incredibly new belief system. Death is separation. I mean, think about it. Death in a physical form is separation, body from soul. Death in the eternal form is eternal separation, soul from the Father. True death, far greater than anything we could imagine just ceasing to be. The penalty is incredibly lofty because the offense is eternal. He is the holy God who looks on sin and condemns it. He will not pass over it. He must, he will, will have justice. So what does the scripture say? How then can we have hope? 2 Corinthians 5.21. The full gospel in one verse. A gospel that we have forgotten, to be just very honest. We have a one-part gospel for some reason nowadays. We go and we tell people, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Is that true? Yes. Yes and amen. But it is a half gospel. That puts, you not, that puts you at just nothingness. You're not worthy of anything else. You're simply as if you were Adam in the garden who refused to eat. You still have no righteousness of your own. And so what we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this. For our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So the very first thing that we're going to see here is this idea of the great exchange that Christ took our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That Jesus absorbed every ounce of God's wrath for us. For those who had placed his, their faith in Christ, they have freedom through that one they have placed their faith in because he has taken the entire amount of God's wrath for you and satisfied it on the cross. That's why when we look at the cross, I think it's a great tragedy that when we fix our eyes there, we almost always meditate only on the physical sufferings of Christ. We think very much of him being nailed to a tree. We think very much of the 39 lashes and the crown being thrust onto his head, but rarely do we pause to think that he drank the eternal wrath of God on that tree. That for three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. And so, by God's grace, what we have is Jesus absorbing the wrath of God, satisfying God's mercy and justice on our behalf. Let me read you what, this is an incredible um, quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, Once on a time, mercy sat upon her snow-white throne surrounded by troops of love. A sinner was brought before her whom mercy designed to save. The herald blew the trumpet and after three blasts thereof with a loud voice he said, O heavens and earth and hell, I summon you this day to come before the throne of mercy to tell why this sinner should not be saved. There stood the sinner trembling with fear. He knew that there were multitudes of opponents who would press into the halls of mercy with eyes full of wrath, would say, he must not, he shall not escape, he must be lost. The trumpet was blown. 
And mercy sat placidly on her throne until there stepped in one with a fiery countenance. His head was covered with light. He spoke with a voice like thunder and out of his eyes flashed lightning. Who are you, said mercy. He replied, I am law, the law of God. I have this to say. He lifted up a stony tablet written on both sides. This wretch has broken these 10 commandments. My demand is blood for it is written, the soul that sins, it shall die. Die he or justice must. The wretch trembles, his knees knock together, the marrow of his bones melts within him as if he were dissolved by fire and he shakes with fright. Already he thought he saw the thunderbolt launched at him. He saw the lightning penetrate into his soul. Hell yawned before him in imagination and he thought himself cast away forever. But mercy smiled and said, law, I will answer you. This wretch deserves to die. Justice demands that he should perish. I award you your claim. And oh, how the sinner trembles. How terrifying would that be in that great day that mercy stands before us and says, yes, death he deserves. But there is an answer. But there is one yonder who has come with me today, my king, my Lord, his name is Jesus. He will tell you how the debt can be paid, the sinner can go free. Then Jesus spoke and said, oh, mercy, I will do your bidding. Take me, Lord, put me in a garden, make me sweat drops of blood, then nail me to a tree. Scourge my back before you put me to death. Hang me on the cross. Let blood run from my hands and feet. Let me descend into the grave. Let me pay all that that sinner owes. I will die in his stead. And the law went out and scourged the Savior, nailed him to the cross, and coming back with his face all bright with satisfaction, stood stood again at the throne of mercy, and the mercy said, Law, what have you now to say? Nothing, said he. Nothing. You see, The law demands the sinner's death. What we forget about the gospel is that it has actually been paid. We assume that the law will one day sneak up behind us and slay us. But God is just. The penalty has been paid. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. I mean, you consider the passage that we just read. I mean, what what beauty is it? I mean, it that not only do we have he, he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, but not only is that, that, that means that the law has absolutely nothing to bring before us any longer. For it to do so means that God would act unjustly. For all of his wrath had been absorbed in Jesus. What the, what the saint needs to understand is the beauty of the gospel is actually that God's wrath is satisfied. It is not ever due you. It cannot because Christ absorbed it all. If we look at the cross and and fear and tremble before it and say, Lord, I fear that my one sin will find me, then we look at the cross and say, Christ did not actually die for all my sin. The beauty of the gospel is that not a single sin went unpaid and that there is absolute freedom for the saint. But once again, even that is just a half gospel. I mean, I'd take that and run. But the foolishness is, that it is not the fullness of the gospel. Instead, what we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, what a joke. I mean, genuinely, consider the foolishness of that, that Christ would die in our stead, that he would absorb the full wrath of God, and then he would look at the sinner and say, now I want you to have every righteous thing that I've ever done. I want that to be put into your account, and I want God to credit that to you, and I want you to receive the blessings of it. That's the full gospel. And for some reason in the last 60, 70 years, we've forgotten it. If you read anything about the gospel that, that happened for some, I mean, b- before 1920, 
It was always justification for sin and imputed righteousness. My sweet friends, when Paul writes to them and says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he is reminding them that your sin is paid for in full, but not just that. You stand before God holy and blameless, as Ephesians 1 would say. And we must start living that way because until we do, we go and preach a half gospel to the lost and dying world without ever truly embracing the full one ourselves. And rarely does that mean that we approach people with joy and say, what a beautiful truth I have to offer you. And so he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But that is half of the news. In verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. This whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is the go-to chapter about the resurrection from the dead. And we often forget that there is something that we should be looking forward to. But let's just combat this really quickly. There are two resurrections in the Christian's life. The first and foremost is when he is called to faith in Jesus and he is saved. There is something new that enters into him. The Spirit of God begins to seal and indwell him. And all of a sudden, a dead man lives. And that's the purpose that Christ came for. He didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. And so what you see in the resurrection of Christ is a promise. A promise not only that that he will give life to those who are his, but not just life here and now, but he will give life to come, that the body will actually be raised. The verse we read earlier about um, uh, death in verse 54 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Friends, death has no sting for the saint. But we live like it does. I live like it does. Driving down the road the other day, I'm thinking to myself, I'm 27 years old, I shouldn't be thinking about my mortality, but for some reason I do frequently. And I'm driving down the road and I'm thinking about the fact that there is a day coming where my heart will stop beating. No longer will breath fill my lungs, but I will rest very comfortably because all of a sudden death becomes just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover. And what we find is a beautiful thing that we enter in through the gates of death only to find life. You see, eternal life for the saint does not start, does not start when you die. It starts at the point of salvation. Never again will we know separation from the Father. Yes, for a brief stint, there will be separation body from soul. But the saints should rest comfortably. There will never, ever, ever be a separation between our great God and King and us. He has rescued us that we might be his bride, that we might be his sons and daughters and friends. He will have his bride and his sons and daughters with him. And so, we look at the gospel, just point blank, very simple. He died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now, what does that mean for the way that we live now? Because that's ultimately the question that we ask is how does this impact the way that we live? How do we, how do we dwell in this with everything that we do? How do we, how do we live in the truths of the gospel embodying everything that we do? How does it impact our marriage? How does it impact the way we raise our children? How does it impact the way that we work and the way that we employ others? Well, we find this in verse 15. I wanna show you. Now I would remind you, brothers, first and foremost, I I want you to see this. Paul is reminding them of the gospel. It is not something that you graduate from. It's not. We don't graduate from the gospel. Instead, we simply go into a deeper mode of longing to have the true depths of it revealed to us. I wrote in an article this week that the gospel is a diamond. 
And still to this day, I will find myself sitting at the dinner table and watching the light hit my bride's engagement ring and noticing it again. In the exact same way, the saint cannot go long without admiring and being mesmerized by the beauty of Christ. He reminds us of it. Not only that, in Romans chapter 1, he longs to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He has just addressed that letter to the saints in Rome. They already know the gospel. Why does he long to preach it to them? Because it is the foundation and central part of the Christian life. It is never meant to be forgotten or graduated from. It is simply meant to be enjoyed by the saint. So he reminds us of it. Notice this, continuing in verse 1, it says, In which you stand. Your security as a believer in Christ is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. Not only is your security rooted there, but ultimately it should impact the way that you live. In which you stand. This is a, this is a continuous process. You're standing in the truths of the gospel. You're dwelling here. It is the place that you reside. It's ultimately your address now. So here's my question. Paul addresses us in Ephesians chapter 5 and makes reference to the fact that, that the gospel in marriage, marriage is meant to be a representation of it. And so, friends, if we are, and in particularly men, if we say that we stand in the gospel and we do not love our wives to the point of laying down our lives for them, we are liars. Liars. If we raise our children and we want them to be obedient yet not know the Lord, then we have done them a great disservice and we have not stood in the truths of the gospel. To this day, I can't tell you how many parents that had come up to me during my student ministry days that would come to me and say, man, he's just a really good kid. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and once or twice, I had to look at him and be like, no, no. They may be moral, they're not good. But it was my greatest joy to go back to them in the future and say, now your child is righteous. But ultimately, we must be wise in the way that we raise our children. One of the greatest tragedies I see is hearing the language of things like VBS, I-M-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. You're familiar with the song. I sang it before I was a Christian. It gave me peace and comfort. False peace and comfort. The gospel is meant to be received on an individual level, and we must be faithful to look at our children and say, if you would believe in Christ, then we'll gladly sing that with you. You see, it is where we stand it's how we interact with our coworkers. Colossians chapter four, beautiful phrase. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everything. Let your conversation be full of grace. Where is the greatest amount of grace found in all of scripture? In the beauty of the gospel. So how do we converse around our lost friends? How do we live out each and every day of our life? What should constantly be on our tongues? And it's the grace that we have found in Christ. Friends, if we say that we love Jesus and he is never on our lips, then we are sadly mistaken. And so what we find here is this beautiful truth that the gospel actually impacts you where you are. I would also like to bring to light the fact that Paul is combating every bad teaching that has happened in Corinth by simply reminding them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. If you long to see your, your, your fellow believers corrected, remind them of Christ. We can go, we can combat the lies that have been told them and by God's grace we should do that. But know that the thing that will cause them to flee and run back to Christ is the gospel that rescued them in the first place. Lastly, by which you are being saved. We are being saved. Something that happened. Yeah, it happened. It's called justification. 
But what is actually happening, happening here and now is called sanctification. That by God's grace, the gospel doesn't stop when you have faith in Jesus. Instead, it is a starting point. It is called uh, justification. Yes, it is the moment where we have been freed forever from the consequence of sin. But it is in sanctification where God frees us from its power. And there will be a great day, one that we long for, one that we should have our eyes fixed on constantly. The great day of glorification where he will rid us forever from its presence. That no longer will it have any snare on us. No longer will we feel its effect. And if sin is gone, so shall suffering be. And so, my friends, my prayer is that what you would find here at Mercy Hill is not only a pulpit that faithfully preaches the gospel of Christ, but that you would find in its members people who long to embody the gospel wherever they are. That you would see marriages centered on the gospel of Christ. That you would see wives that gladly submitted to their head because he represents Christ well to them that you would see children raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we would watch many, many be baptized here. One of the greatest longings in my heart is to watch dad baptize their children. And so my prayer for us, because understand this vision series, as much as it's communicating to you exactly what we want to see here at Mercy Hill, at the exact same time, it is intentional reminders to me that the purpose of this church is not to build a, a number but it is to build saints, to watch them be sanctified, to watch them live out the gospel and to watch Olive Branch and the nations be forever changed. And that only happens if our foundation and our centerpiece to everything we do is the gospel of Jesus.